0: I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids.
1: Welcome everybody to the much delayed and definitely changed around episode 15 of Naples Ultra. I'm your host, Spencer Downing, and this is the first time I've done an actual intro for the podcast in a couple episodes, but I'd like to go over what this episode's gonna look like and why you're getting it a little bit later. So first off, what's been going on? Well, As I've alluded to in previous episodes, I'm currently undergoing training for my new job as a uniformed lawman. The previous weeks haven't been as difficult as the last two weeks. Talking to other people who have taken the course before, these last two weeks are the most difficult in the course, and they're the two weeks that defines people, basically. They define whether or not they stay the course or fall apart. I'm happy to say I stayed the course, I gave it my all, I found out about muscles that I didn't know existed until this point in time, and I'm extremely proud of myself. So I wrote a big blog post about what the training academy is like, that there's basically a physical component and an academic component. The academic component is really easy for me, I've never had trouble taking tests, studying, researching, all that good stuff, But the tests you get mark your placement when you return to work. They also mark your pay, and when they look to promote you, they look back at your training academy file and see what your test scores were. So I've been taking these tests very seriously and studying very hard for them. We just had our midterm today as of recording this, as well as we had a written exam on our unarmed combat training last Thursday. And with those two tests out of the way, there's no more written tests until the final, which is in about four weeks from now. And then the week previously, we had our law exam. So all the exams really get condensed into this small week or two window. On top of the academic component, there is the physical component. And the physical component is much more difficult for me. I wasn't in the best shape when I went into the training academy. Certainly in a lot better shape now because they do physical training most days as well as they do various scenarios and drills and all different types of things to make sure your physical fitness is at a high level. And that's been the most difficult part for me. On particularly physically demanding days, I'll often come home from work very tired and sore and not in the best mood and just kind of chill out and tune out the rest of the world and try and recover my energy until the next day. So, needless to say, I just haven't gotten a lot of work done in the past two weeks. One of the major things I talked about in the blog was my pepper spray experience, because everybody has to get pepper sprayed as part of the course, and it was definitely not a lot of fun so the stuff they use is actually like the weapons grade pepper spray the stuff you can't buy at any type of over-the-counter store it's considered a restricted weapon here and only people with the proper authority are allowed to use it so they pepper spray you basically to make sure in case shit hits the fan and you get pepper sprayed yourself or something that you're able to fight through it and keep on going So the actual story itself happens the day before getting sprayed. At the very last moment of the day, all the instructors for the course come in and say, Tomorrow's the day. Tomorrow's the day. Everybody's getting sprayed. This is what you've got to do to prepare for it. So I come home at the end of the day, and I'm freaking out. I'm super nervous. I'm super anxious about this. I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is that it's going to suck big time. So needless to say, I didn't get much sleep last night, and they don't actually spray you until the afternoon. So I get to the training academy the next day. We have a couple lectures, and I have no idea what happened in them. I wasn't paying attention whatsoever. I'm sitting there completely freaked out about the fact I'm about to be sprayed in a couple hours. So, anyway, we have a short lunch because it takes a while to get through everybody, and after lunch, the instructor comes up, and he looks around the room, and he's like, you, 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 and he picks up a bunch of random people, and they all go downstairs mysteriously, and we don't see them again until we're finished the experience. So, anyway, The instructor comes back up, looks around again, and goes, you, 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 you. And this time, I was in. I was in the second wave. And there was a total of six waves of people that went. And I was very happy that I was closer to the top. So anyway, we go downstairs, and we each have a partner. And our partner is the person who helps us decontaminate after getting sprayed. So I'm down there with six other people, and we're all freaking out. They lead us into this big, long hallway and tell us all to stand there with our partners. And then eventually, one of the instructors pokes their head in through the door and then chooses someone to go in. And it reminded me a lot of that scene from Gladiator when they're all about to go into the ring for the first time, and they're all sitting there, and everybody's super nervous. They're all freaking out and just waiting to be called in. So after about five minutes, the first person comes back through those doors and down that long hallway, and they've been pepper sprayed. And everybody was reacting differently. Some people were just in agonizing pain. Some people were crying. Some people had snot everywhere. And this is, again, getting everybody more amped up. And this is part of the reason why I was happy to be one of the first ones, because while the majority of the class was going through and suffering through the experience, I had already suffered through it, I guess. I had already paid my dues, and if I had to sit there and watch person after person come through being pepper sprayed in complete agony, I might have just lost my mind. So anyway, the instructor comes in and points at me, and it's my turn to go. So I walk down. Of course, my heart's racing. He takes me outside, and he says, I'm gonna pepper spray you three times across the face. Close your eyes and let me know when you're ready. So I close my eyes, and I take five deep breaths, I counted them, and say, go ahead, do it. So he sprays me, and at the first moment, I'm like, hey, this isn't so bad, this isn't that painful, and then they lead me into the gym, because you don't just get pepper sprayed, you have to do an obstacle course after being pepper sprayed. So they take you inside the gym, and they tell you to blink to ensure that you get it in your eyes. And that moment that I blunk, that's when it was like searing pain. It was like a thousand tiny paper cuts inside my eyeballs. And then it's live. You've got to run the obstacle course. And I don't remember everything that was in there. Uh, you have to do some punches, some kicks. Uh, you have to handcuff somebody. Uh, you have to do some CPR. All in all, I think it took me about three to five minutes, but I have no idea what my actual time was so anyway I finished all the instructors are clapping and cheering and say you did it man you did it and then they take me out and my safety coach is there he's got my towels and he leads me into the bathroom and then we start to decontaminate and then during decontamination is when the pain really starts to sink in because during the actual obstacle course your adrenaline is way up so you don't notice it as much but as soon as I started putting water on my face, I realized just how much it burned and just how much pain my eyes were in. And then I start freaking out again. I'm hyperventilating. I'm panicking. I'm pretty sure my body thought something serious is really going on because you're not used to having a huge amount of pain in your eyes. And your eyes are a pretty important part of your body. So the fact that you can't see you're in so much pain, it's really not a nice experience. So I'm trying to decontaminate, but I can't keep a stable breathing rate because every time I go under the water, it feels like I'm suffocating. So I have to get out, and then all of a sudden, here comes the burning sensation. So decontamination was really the suckiest part. And after about 30 minutes of constantly running water over my face and cleaning out my eyes, I was ready to go outside. And it's actually the cool air that really decontaminates you. The water just makes sure the pepper spray particles don't get lodged in your eyes and your skin and so on and so forth, but it doesn't actually decontaminate them. So by the time I got outside, I could finally start seeing again and my face and my skin was still on fire. It felt like the world's worst sunburn, but it's going down. The pain's going down. I know at this point I'm over the hill and I just have to wait for the pain to subside. So after about another half an hour, I was at the point where the pain was now just a dull roar and I started feeling functional again. So I came out and I was like, yes, I did it. It's done. It's over. And at this point, now it's my turn to help out my partner who helped me decontaminate. And I think the poor guy got it worse than I did because he actually got it in his throat. I never opened my mouth during the whole time because I didn't want to get that crap in my mouth or on my tongue or potentially in my throat, but he did. So he was having a real tough time breathing, but we all made it. We all got through and we're all happy it's behind us now. But yeah, it was definitely the worst pain of my life. So anyway, that's my pepper spray story. This week in course looks like it's a lot more chill and we've completed most of the very difficult components of it. So, moving forward, it shouldn't be so much of a hindrance to my daily life. But you never know, because the instructors do like to throw curveballs at us. They like to spring things on us without much opportunity for planning or build-up, because they like to see how we react. So, you never know what will happen. Anyway, on to the actual... Substance of today's episode. I know I promised an engagement episode. Unfortunately, I just haven't had the time to do the research that I feel like I can produce a compelling and intellectually consistent podcast on either Marx or Machiavelli. So what I've decided to do today is take you on a journey and This is going to be a journey that is framed for my own personal reference. But it's a journey about how the traditional battle lines of the political left and the political right are dissolving. And right now, it feels like complete and total anarchy. Like, we're all trying to decide where the battles, the political battles, that is, of the future will be fought. And it's a very messy, disorganized, and oftentimes painful process. And during this process, I've had to make a lot of difficult conclusions and I've had to face a lot of hard choices. So this is an episode about where the political battle lines used to be, how they're changing, and where the future might take us. So without further ado, I present to you episode 15 of Naples Ultra, Old Ideas and New Battlefields.
0: It's incredibly obvious, isn't it? A foreign substance is introduced into our precious bodily fluids without the knowledge of the individual certainly without any choice that's the way your hardcore commie works Jack, Jack, listen, tell me tell me, Jack, when did you first become, well, develop this theory? Well, I, uh, I, I first became aware of it, Mandrake, during the physical act of love. Huh. Yes, a a profound sense of fatigue, a feeling of emptiness followed. Hmm. Luckily, I I was able to interpret these feelings correctly. Loss of essence. Huh. I can assure you, it has not recurred, Mandrake. Women. Women sense my power and they seek the life essence. I do not avoid women, Andre. No. But I I do deny them my essence.
1: <laughs> yes. If you had asked me five years ago what my political identity was, I could tell you very easily and very concisely where I stood and who I stood with. And when you're in that moment of absolute certainty, you can't imagine a change in your own personal philosophies and ideologies. You can't imagine a time when the people surrounding you and the people you called friends, leaders, comrades, would all of a sudden become none of the above. And I don't know how often something like this happens in the average lifespan of a human being where they undergo significant political shifts and completely change where they stand politically and ideologically. Maybe it only happens once in an average person's lifetime. Maybe it never happens. Maybe it's continually happening. I have no idea. I have no statistics, no studies, no information I can point to you about this specific question. But for myself personally, I know I'm in the middle of An ideological transitional period. I have no idea where I'm going to end up. But what I do know is that I'm very close to leaving the station I had hung my hat on for so many years. And where I'm going to end up, I have no idea. Because I don't see any stations in the horizon that seem warm and inviting to me. So let's go back a little bit and tell you where I used to stand. I was definitely what you would call a left-leaning individual, and more left-leaning than the average person. On economics, I leaned very, very left, definitely deep within the socialist camp. And I would say that's probably the part of my identity that has changed the least. In economic terms, I'm still very left-leaning, and I'll talk a little bit about why in the future of this episode. And when it came to social issues, I was also left-leaning, but I wanted to continually impose my will onto other people. I very much believed that my way was the best way, and if you didn't subscribe to these social policies, then you were most likely a terrible human being. And when it comes to social policies, I'm talking about abortion, gay marriage, religious rights, those types of things. And in this narrow world, who my enemies were and who my friends were was very apparent. When I was growing up, I lived in the most religious city in Canada, the city that had the most churches per capita and was generally considered the Bible Belt of Canada. And symbols of religion and religious authorities were everywhere. And the majority of people who went to school with me were deep fundamentalist Christians. It was very clear who made up the powerful majority in my little world. It was the Christians. And I quite frankly felt they had too much say in my life and they had too much say what was taught in schools and how the community was organized. As someone who has never affiliated themselves with a major religion, and probably never will, I felt like there was no outlet for me, that there was no one I could comfortably talk to. So when I found another atheist in the community, we obviously got along very well. And for the most part, all the atheist people that I had associated myself with were also left-leaning people. And all the Christians that made up the power structure in my city, they were all right-leaning people. So my earliest political battles were about religion and the role of religion in society as well as people's lives. And from that stemmed, a very adversarial frame of mind towards conservatives because the conservatives were always on the side of the Christian power structure, I guess you could say. We'll just call it that for simplicity's sake. The conservatives were never going to stand up for me. They were never going to stand up for what I believed in. So I knew I couldn't count on them. But I did know who had my back and that was the left-leaning people, especially the far left-leaning people. So I started out as a socialist, atheist, crusader. And I was going to spend my time fighting religion and capitalism anywhere I could. And I thought things were going to stay this way forever. Because ever since I started getting really interested in politics, which was about the age of 13, that's the way it was. In my world, it was the secular left versus The religious right. And this was very much reinforced by the attitudes in the United States because that's exactly the frame of reference that was dominating United States politics for about a good decade. So in my mind, I look around and see religious authority has too much power and infringes on too many freedoms here in Canada and in the United States. Gay people weren't allowed to get married, abortions were blocked at every turn, and calling yourself an atheist was pretty much akin to putting a scarlet letter on your clothing. Because especially in the United States, the majority of the country would persecute you for being an atheist. But the turning point, really, for me, started when I got out of university. I left the Bible Belt of Canada and started my own career in a new town, new job, and had completely shed most of my ties for my university experience. And I got out of university just as the 2012 presidential election was winding down. So 2012 marks a defining point for me. It marks a political shift, not just my own personal experience, but in politics in a larger sense. Because let's look back at 2012 and the issues that drove that campaign, and this is the presidential election in the United States, a huge portion of that campaign was fought around religious issues. The battle surrounding gay marriage was finally coming to its ultimate conclusion, and most people, I think, remember the famous remarks from one U.S. politician. I can't remember if he was a congressman or a senator by the name of Todd Akin. And he made this very famous comment about how the body had a way of shutting down pregnancies from quote-unquote legitimate rape. And I think there was a moment, even among most moderate Christians, where they looked up and said, okay, this has gone too far. This is beyond the pale we can't have this in our country. And that's not to say that religion was the only issue driving that 2012 campaign. In fact, we saw shades of what's driving this 2016 campaign as Mitt Romney's tax plan looked set to massively redistribute wealth from the bottom and middle classes to the upper classes. And of course, we had Probably the remark that sunk Mitt Romney's campaign, that very famous 47% remark, where he said, you know those 47% of people who are going to vote Democrat no matter what? I don't care about them. They don't matter to me. But as a whole, I feel that 2012 might be the last presidential campaign where religion takes center stage. Religion is always going to be a part. Of campaigns in the United States. But from here on out, I feel like the religiosity of politicians is going to keep coming down and down. Because look at this campaign. Almost no one on the Democratic side spends any time talking about their personal religion. Bernie Sanders got asked a question once, I think, whether or not he believes in God. But for the most part, Religion has been absent from the Democratic debate. On the Republican side, it did play a larger role, but not as large as it used to, because Donald Trump clearly is not your conventional Christian. I mean, honestly, who the heck knows what that guy believes, but even if you do believe he's a Christian, his Christian credentials are pretty skimpy. Ted Cruz, on the other hand, did make religion a central theme of his campaign, and it might have been one of the serious contributing factors to his downfall. Because it seemed like the more Ted Cruz would talk about religion, the less momentum he would have. Even in the deeply religious South, Ted Cruz didn't pull out a single victory beyond his home state and Oklahoma. And of course, he was banking on the religious vote in the Indiana primary to carry him forth to victory. Unfortunately, it either didn't show up or voted for Donald Trump instead. And we'll talk a little bit more about those primaries in the current events section of the show. Anyway, it seemed after 2012, something strange happened. Less and less religious figures were appearing on television, spreading their messages, and trying to drum up support. The last big event I remember in terms of a religious debate was that famous debate against Bill Nye and Ken Ham, the founder of the Creationist Museum. And of course, Bill Nye destroyed him so utterly and so completely that we have had almost no talk of creationism in the media or mainstream conversation since then. So at this point, the Christians had lost on virtually every front. They'd lost on gay marriage. They lost on abortion. They lost on creationism and they kind of receded back into society and they just decided to live their lives and practice their faith and do so in a way that doesn't try and impose their will on other people. It seemed like Christians Just wanted to be Christians. And I was 100% okay with that. Because my goal wasn't ever to wipe out Christianity as a faith. It was for them to leave me alone and let me believe what I want to believe. And in turn, I will leave you alone and let you believe whatever you want to believe. And once that point happened, what a person's faith was and what they believed didn't matter to me at all. It didn't matter to me in terms of their politics, in terms of my personal associations with them in terms of whether or not I wanted to sit down and have a beer with them. It was time to let bygones be bygones and for everyone to come together and live in an age of harmony, peace, and happiness. But as we all know, that's not what happened. There was a moment when the traditional left, let's say, the party establishment of left-leaning parties in this country and other Western European countries started to leave me behind. In fact, they made me feel like I wasn't wanted and my contributions and my efforts were meaningless. But let's go back a little bit further and I want to talk briefly about the end to my authoritarian streak or at least my want and desire to change Other people's opinions and lifestyles to come into grips with my own. And that really started when the relationship between the woman who is now my wife and I really started to get serious. At almost the same time our relationship got really serious, I got a long-term job as the head of a department at a dealership. And that was a high responsibility job. And when you combine that with the fact that I was in a a long-distance relationship, and had to spend a lot of time working out flights and travel schedules. All of a sudden, my life didn't have room for spending a bunch of time to tell other people how to live their lives. And then after that, I proposed to my wife, and then we had to plan a wedding. And then after that, because she's an immigrant, we had to get all our paperwork together together, And send that off to the government, a process which is still ongoing. We still haven't completed the whole immigration song and dance. So that's something that hasn't subsided. And then, of course, I bought a car. I got my own apartment. Uh, we got some pets and responsibilities just kept increasing and increasing. And of course, my want and need to meddle with the affairs of others continued to decrease. decrease, to the point where I absolutely had no opinion as to what other people decided to do with their lives. All I wanted is for those other people to leave me alone so I could live my life. And that's the primary value I fight for today, is I fight against people who want to restrict other people's freedoms, but at the same time, I don't try and change who they are or what they believe. I don't care who they are or what they believe. All I want them to do is stop meddling with other people. So let's go back to that shift I talked about earlier, when the left started to leave me behind. And what I feel like really happened is that the people who were fighting for these cultural changes, for gay marriage to become mainstream within society, to increase access to abortions, and all these other social issues which took center stage over the last decade, had won their fight. And just like the proverbial dog who catches the car, they didn't know what to do once they had it. And their first instinct was to keep fighting even if the things they were fighting against were very minor or potentially manufactured in the first place. All that they had in their toolbox was a hammer, and you know what they say about people who only have hammers, everything looks like a nail. So in this post-cultural victory era, Who were the people that were next on the hit list? Well, it seems like they ended up being people like me. People who were on their side the whole time. So the point in which I realized that the political battlefields of the future had really shifted was during the great controversy that overtook the internet for a good year or so, Gamergate. And I was a guy who was on the pro side, if that's what you want to call it, during the whole controversy. And that's because, as many of you probably know, video games are important to me. They're my number one hobby. I met my wife playing video games. They are an integral part of my life. And that's something I've never been ashamed to admit. And as this controversy was shaping up, I realized I had some pretty strange bedfellows. Some bedfellows that I would never call my friends or associates before this point in time. While the people who I used to think were my friends and associates were on the other side, yelling at me and telling me that I was a terrible human being. And just to go over this controversy a bit, it started back in August of 2014, It was spurred on by allegations that a video game developer had cheated on her current boyfriend and slept with a bunch of media figures throughout the gaming industry in order to garner positive attention for her game. And this quickly devolved into two sides, people who were gamers and were appalled by the breach of trust that we had put in these media figures. And then, of course, there was the other side that felt that all of these allegations were either made up or unimportant and anybody who made a big deal about them was not a nice person and could generally be disregarded or ignored. But for me personally, all I ever wanted was just to be left alone and be allowed to play my games in peace. That's all I asked for, that's all I wanted, but all of a sudden, being a gamer and enjoying video games suddenly meant you were racist or misogynist or whatever else. And this narrative was being pushed by media outlets that I had trusted for my information for a long time, and not only that, a lot of the information coming from these media sources was demonstrably untrue. At the same time, you have media outlets like Breitbart, an outlet which I completely disregarded and would never have ventured onto previously, were coming to the defense of guys like me. And here we have a reversal of the circumstances that I started my political awakening with. All of a sudden, I felt like, certain people on the left, definitely not all left-leaning people or outlets or anything of that nature, didn't have my back. And now, people on the right did. And if you told me I would be in this position five years ago, I would have said you're crazy. But here we are today. However, what I realize now is that the battlefield, I guess you could say, is far more complicated than I had originally thought. Back then, that is two years ago now, I thought that Gamergate was the war to be won. But now I understand that Gamergate is just a battle in a larger war. And what this war is about is what the soul of the left and the right is going to be for the foreseeable future. And it's clear now that both the left and the right are fighting amongst themselves, but not necessarily focused on fighting each other. Because the issues that they're going to fight one another on still aren't very clear. Because there's currently a lot of overlap between certain sections of both the left and the right. So now, instead of there being two clearly defined large camps that, broadly speaking, bring together people of like-minded political ideologies, it feels like there are four camps now. So, broadly speaking, what do these four camps look like? Well, in a broad sense, they look like the four squares of the political compass. And for those of you who don't know, the political compass is a very famous test that you use to define yourself in the political spectrum. So you take this quiz, and it's got 20 or 30 questions. And when you're done, it places you on a continuum on this compass. And there are two sides. There's a social policy side and a economic policy side, I guess you could say. So on the economic side, it's divided between left and right. And then on the social policy side, it's divided between authoritarian, and libertarian. So on this test, you can score in one of four corners. You can score on the top left corner, which means you scored high in left-leaning economic policies and high in authoritarian social policies, or you can score low on the authoritarian side and be a left-leaning libertarian. And then, of course, on the right side, it's reversed. There's the authoritarian right and the libertarian right. And these, broadly speaking, define our four camps. We have the authoritarian left, the libertarian left, the authoritarian right, and the libertarian right. And for me personally, I score very highly in the libertarian left category. And what's really strange is that I feel like I get along better with people who score in the libertarian right category than people who score highly on the authoritarian left category. But let's put this into more concrete terms. Who exactly are the authoritarian left? And these people are easy to identify. They are what are often called the social justice warriors, the third wave feminists, the hardcore PC crowd, whatever you want to call them, for the most part, you probably understand who I'm talking about here. And while I felt like the left used to be the section of the political spectrum that had reason and logic and freedom on its side, now it seems like this isn't the case, as the authoritarian left has risen to be the face of the left wing potentially across the world, definitely here in North America. What it seems like happened here is that the left won the cultural wars, essentially. They quote-unquote defeated the authoritarian right, who to me is represented very much so by the evangelicals, the traditional Republican Party establishment. But somehow by doing this, They got poisoned in their victory and started to take some of the authoritarian trappings of the authoritarian right and told people how they could live their lives, what they should do, how they should think, what they can and cannot say, what's acceptable, quote unquote, in society as a whole. As well, they abandoned the idea of defending The, I guess you could say, constitutional ideals that define Western civilization. For example, they abandoned the legal principles in which this country stands on, and the authoritarian right did that long ago by advocating for things such as torture, for not giving people who are deemed as terrorists fair trials, essentially deeming them guilty via accusation. And when the right wing did it, I always stood against and denounced this practice. But now people on the left are doing the exact same thing, just for people who are accused of different crimes. These crimes being crimes of sexual assault. So people on the left are now saying that those who are accused of sexual assault crimes don't deserve the same due process as those convicted of other crimes yet not realizing, it seems, that they spent years denouncing the right for doing the exact same things of those accused of terrorist acts. I, for one, believe wholeheartedly in the rule of law, and I think if you've been listening for this long, you understand that, that I believe that no matter what anyone is accused of, they deserve a fair trial, and they deserve the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. And what's really interesting is I think that rank-and-file conservatives, I'm not sure how rank-and-file conservatives feel in the United States and other countries, but at least here in Canada, they are beginning to understand that there's an opening for them. That the way to a renewed conservative movement is becoming clearer, and they're already taking steps to go down that path and that future is within the libertarian movement. And I understood this when a friend of mine who, a year or two ago, would have definitely been part of that authoritarian right, looked at me and said, I know where we went wrong. As conservatives, I know where we went wrong. We adopted the mantle of authoritarianism. People don't like authoritarianism. We have to once again embrace the ideas of individual freedom and stand by them in an ideologically consistent way. And then he says to me, we don't need authoritarianism. The left clearly wants it and they can have it. And I think if you're a conservative, you can very easily come up with a compelling argument for the libertarian right. And if they can do that, I think if the authoritarian left does become the entrenched orthodoxy of people who are left-leaning, then they're in serious trouble moving into the future. Because guys like me, who are on the libertarian left, are feeling more and more like we don't have a home. At least that's the way I'm feeling right now, is I'm becoming more alienated from my traditional party base. I talked about it a little bit in the last podcast, how I'm inching closer and closer to leaving the NDP because I see these authoritarian seeds being planted in the party and now starting to bear fruit. But it's even worse in the Liberal Party of Canada, so it's not like I can up and join them either. And this orthodoxy that's forming on the left is becoming an us versus them mentality. This idea that if you don't subscribe to our worldview then we don't want you, we don't need you, and you're the enemy. And that's something I have no tolerance for. So if the authoritarian left is going to continue alienating the libertarian left, and I could see this happening in the United States right now with, I think, Hillary Clinton representing the authoritarian left and Bernie Sanders representing the libertarian left, the gulf between them Is growing only wider and wider. And if it gets too wide that it's impossible to reconcile these two sides, what happens? Well, if you're a libertarian left leaning guy like I am, you have one of two choices. You could either make your own party or you can join another group. And I think it's possible for someone on the libertarian right to make a convincing enough argument to bring large portions of those libertarian left-leaning people over to their side. And I do think the vice versa would also be true. I think a strong left-leaning libertarian could bring over those right-leaning libertarians. But if I were to make a guess at which side was going to first try and co-opt the other, it would be the right trying to co-opt the left. And to me, these are the only two camps in our four-camp society that we're living in now that could conceivably join together at this point. It's clear that the libertarian right doesn't want anything to do with the authoritarian right anymore. Again, those are represented by the GOP establishment, which is definitely on its death rows now. And if the authoritarian left doesn't want anything to do with the libertarian right, well, that leaves those two camps joining forces out of the equation. And I highly doubt the two authoritarian sides would ever consider coming together. So that leaves the two libertarian sides, both of whom seem to be looking for change, looking for a new path forward. And if these two sides could somehow combine themselves, I think they'd be a very formidable political force. However, that doesn't mean I think it will be easy, because both the libertarian left and the libertarian right have substantial differences. And those, of course, come down to economics. Because I do believe strongly in left-leaning economic policies. I'm certainly not out to destroy capitalism as we know it anymore. I've certainly rolled myself back. But at this point, I can see how people got it wrong. It's a false dichotomy between socialism and capitalism. I think these two forces can actually bring out the best in one another. Because I believe that socialist economic policies can equip you better to play the game in the free market capitalist society. And let me use a hockey metaphor here. Let's say you have two teams facing off against one another. You have one team who has all their gear supplied to them by the team. So they have their hockey sticks, their padding, their jerseys, And everything else they could need. Well, you face against the other team who has to bring all their own equipment. And some people may be able to afford that equipment. Some people might not. It's certainly not uniform. At the end of the day, when these two teams go off to face against one another, who do you think is going to have a better chance at succeeding in the game? Those that have the proper equipment given to them? or those that don't. Let's bring it to a more real-world example. Let's say that we have a socialist policy of paying for everybody's post-secondary education. When you graduate university and you go out to compete in that capitalist economic field, do you think that your country, who has more college-educated civilians will be able to perform better in that free market economy than one that doesn't. I think the answer is pretty clear here. So I want to best prepare people to play into that free market capitalist society. And that's where me and the right libertarians disagree. We have fundamental disagreements on how to best prepare society to play that game. But I don't think those disagreements are as insurmountable as the disagreements faced in these other dynamics between the various corners. And that's where we're going to have to stop the topical segment for now. I know it was a little bit more informal, it was a little bit more impromptu and personal, but at the end of the day, what I want you guys to think about when you're finished listening to this podcast and by yourselves and have some time to reflect on the status of society, is where do you fit into this dynamic? Which corner do you fit into? And where do you see the struggles between these political forces headed? Are you optimistic about how this conflict is going to resolve itself, or are you pessimistic? I do believe that now is the time for serious reflection on both an individual level and a societal level. We're living in important, defining times right now. And we're all going to play a big role in shaping what that future is going to look like. Let's make sure it's a future we can be proud of. Welcome, everybody, to the second segment of Naples Ultra. I'm your host, Spencer Downing. And as always, before we get into it, let's talk about some current events. And there's a lot going on right now because I haven't had the chance to talk about anything in three weeks. And when you don't do a show in three weeks, well, it seems like things start to pile up. But let's start with the thing that is closest to home for me and something that a lot of you have been asking me about, and those are the wildfires currently going on in Fort McMurray. So, for those of you who don't know, uh, Fort McMurray is a town here in Alberta. It's north of Edmonton, specifically six hours north of Edmonton, so way, way, way north, and it happens to be the impromptu capital of Canada's oil sands. So, Fort McMurray is a blue-collar oil rigger town. It's a place where people from all across Canada and the world go to to try and make a decent living. Because if you can get a good job on an oil rig, you can make a ton of money. And right now, this town is undergoing a serious crisis, and that is severe wildfires. And here in Canada, we have a lot of wildfires. And it's not due to human intervention or anything like that. It's a very natural process that nature has to undergo every so often. You know, this process of creative destruction. And usually what happens is that a Lightning will strike a tree. It'll set that tree on fire. It will be in a remote area where nobody's around for miles and miles and miles. That fire will continue to spread and grow and grow and grow. And then sometimes these fires come into contact with populated areas. Most of the time these fires just burn out by themselves. They don't touch any towns. They don't hurt anybody. They just kind of do their own thing. Not this time, though, as the wildfires spread into the city of Fort McMurray and caused an evacuation of the entire town, a town of approximately 80,000 people, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but as far as northern Canadian cities go, I don't want to say for sure but I think Fort McMurray might be the biggest city in Canada north of Edmonton. I could be wrong, but it's definitely one of the biggest cities in Canada north of Edmonton. So for us Canadians, this is a large city. This is a lot of people. And it's a very scary situation for these people. I don't know if you've seen a lot of the pictures coming out of Fort McMurray, but they are incredible. Uh, the pictures of both the fire and the aftermath in the town are enthralling, scary, and heartbreaking. Here in Edmonton, fortunately, we're safe from any kind of natural disasters or anything along those lines. We don't have any forests surrounding us, so we can't be engulfed by flames or anything. But there are tens of thousands of residents who have fled to Edmonton, The Rexall place, which is where the Edmonton Oilers play, has been converted into a massive evacuation center. The convention center here in Edmonton has also been turned into an evacuation center. And all in all, we're doing everything that we can to help these people. So as it stands now, it seems like the fire has mostly been contained. It continues to burn uncontrollably. Fortunately, it's burning in directions in which there are no population centers. So it seems like the city itself has now seen the worst of it, and hopefully it will get better from here. The city was deemed safe enough for Alberta Premier Rachel Notley to go and visit Fort McMurray and survey the damage. As of this point, I believe it's 2,500 structures that have been destroyed, but approximately 80% of the town still remains intact. So that's definitely good to hear. But I personally can't imagine what it would be like to go through something like that. And I hope that I personally never have to endure something so difficult in my lifetime. Anyway, later this week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is also going to visit the city. And for some bizarre unknown reason, he has turned down help from Various international governments which have pledged aid in this crisis. It's an absolutely baffling move to me. I don't understand it, but at least for now, it seems like the blaze is under control. And last thing here is that I want to say is that my heart goes out to the people of Fort McMurray, and I would encourage anybody to donate to the Canadian Red Cross to help the people of Fort McMurray. The Canadian government is matching all donations to the Red Cross. So if you give 20 bucks, it's really like you give 40 bucks. And that's about all I have to say about that. Stay strong, Fort McMurray. We're all pulling for you. On to our primary updates. And boy, howdy, have there been a lot of them. So on the Republican side, Donald Trump has destroyed all humans and is now the presumptive nominee For the Republican Party. After the primary in Indiana last week, Donald Trump defeated Ted Cruz by a very healthy margin and forced him to drop out of the race, which left him against Ohio Governor John Kasich for all of about a day. Because the next day, for some bizarre, inexplicable reason, John Kasich also dropped out of the race. And I honestly have no good explanation as to why he did this. I mean, he finally had what he wanted, he was the last man standing against Donald Trump, and while he didn't have a high probability of denying him the delegates that he needed to win the convention on the first ballot, he still could have made a damn good run at it, I think. And who knows what could have happened when it's just man-on-man. But for whatever reason... John Kasich decided it wasn't for him, so he dropped out, leaving Donald Trump as the only man standing. And there you have it. No more ifs, ands, or buts. Donald Trump is the Republican Party's nominee for the 2016 presidential election. And it's only going to get crazier from here. On the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders suffered a series of stinging losses but made up a little bit of ground in Indiana and West Virginia. But at this point, he doesn't have enough primaries left to make up the gap between himself and Hillary Clinton. And I was thinking about this the other day, that the real story of the Democratic primary is emblematic of one of those famous Joseph Stalin quotes. Joseph Stalin said, those who cast the votes don't decide elections. Those who count the votes decide everything, or paraphrasing something along those lines. But this Democratic primary contest has revealed another angle to this quote that I was thinking about, and that is that those who cast the votes decide nothing. Those who choose who can vote and who can't vote decide everything. Because in reality, how much difference is there between these two scenarios if you decide who can and can't vote you can create a system where you can rig the election in your preferred candidate's favor by allowing people who are more likely to support them to vote while at the same time disparing those who might oppose your candidate from voting which seems to be exactly what happened in this democratic primary contest there was constant voter purges there was constant voter suppression, and it was proven time and time again in states where the Democratic Party has a lot of sway on who can vote and who can't. Well, lo and behold, it looks like Hillary Clinton wins those states by surprising margins. But when the Democratic Party has less control of who can vote and who can't vote, well, look at that. Oh, Bernie Sanders wins. And ultimately, where does this get us? Well, a general election between the two most hated candidates of all time. And I haven't found one single American yet who thinks that's a good thing for their country. So with the primaries winding down, we're going to be talking less and less about them. As it seems like it is going to be a Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump race, much to my sadness. But that doesn't mean the ideas and visions and goals that Bernie Sanders stood for are going away anytime soon. All that it means is that his political allies have to wait four more years to make another crack at it. There is, of course, the possibility that Hillary Clinton gets indicted and that definitely changes the equation. But I don't think people should hold their breath on that one or assume that it's going to happen. But then again, crazier things have happened. I mean, Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, so we're living in a world where you can't take anything for granted. On to the United Kingdom, we have some election updates there. We have Labour's favorite candidate winning in the London mayoral elections, however, they, I believe, lost their majority in the Welsh constituency and were knocked back to third place in Scotland. So overall, not the worst night, but probably not the night Labour wanted. Of those prizes up for grabs, I think the mayoral Contest in London was probably the most important to win and will have the most influence on upcoming elections. But overall, it was certainly a mixed bag. And last thing I want to talk about is what's going on in the Philippines. They just had a major election in the Philippines in which a fellow by the name of Rodrigo Duterte or Duterte, I'm not a 100% sure how to pronounce his name, has won a convincing majority. And why this matters is because Rodrigo was seen as this Donald Trump-like character in the Philippines. And he garnered a lot of attention for being this maverick, kind of telling it like it is and making all sorts of controversial statements. And I actually had the chance to sit down and talk to a Filipini gentleman about this election and get his perspective. And I thought his perspective was really interesting because... It changed the way I was thinking about this whole election in the Philippines. So, what he told me was that this guy used to be the mayor of a large city in the Philippines, and what he did was make a name for himself by really cleaning up the town. He had very strict rules, like extremely strict. His attitude, he said, was basically, if you're going to mess around in my town, I'm going to kill you and apparently it was effective that his city was one of the most well-run and least crime-ridden cities in the Philippines. But what he also told me was that this guy isn't seen as a right-winger in the Philippines. He is seen as almost a communist figure, and what he wanted to do was take this strict regime of discipline and institute it in the entire nation of the Philippines. And this really resonated with a lot of the population because government corruption in the country was so extreme and so crippling that people wanted to change and they were willing to accept just about anything that would potentially deliver that change to them. So they look at a guy like Rodrigo who has a proven track record of cleaning up government corruption, and a lot of people in the Philippines looked at him and said, this guy's my guy. This guy's the guy who's going to clean up this mess once and for all. And when I was hearing his perspective, you can hardly blame the Filipino people for voting the way they did. Because government corruption is something that holds back a lot of developing countries. In fact, it might be the number one thing that holds back a developing country from becoming a developed country. Whether or not this shift represents the change that the Filipini people want or need, well, the jury's still out, but I wish them all the best. So now, let's get to some questions. At the end of the question segment, we're going to get to the follow-up, finally, sorry, like three weeks later, of Jartan's awesome analysis of how the Panama Papers are affecting him in his home country. However, that will be the last thing we'll tackle today. This question segment will be a little bit longer. In fact, looking at the podcast now, it's going to be a little bit longer than the average Plus Ultra episode, and that is mainly because of the delay here and hoping that you get a little bit more value out of a longer episode. So anyway, our first question comes from Matt Benz, and he writes in to ask, Hello Spencer, I was wondering if you could share exactly what you don't like about the Leap Manifesto. I happen to be Canadian, and in the last election, I voted for the Liberal Party. This was not an easy choice. I was split between the NDP, Liberals, and Green, right up until the night of the election. I decided against voting for the Green Party because the local guy running was an idiot, and I decided against voting the NDP at the last minute due to how I hated how Malker tried to pander to separatists. A lot of Canadians probably didn't notice how many separatist buzzwords he used when discussing Quebec. As someone living in Quebec, this is a giant red flag for me. But I have recently been reading up about the Leap Manifesto, and if this becomes NDP policy, I will almost certainly support them in the next election. I am not a fan of all of the manifesto, but I am a supporter of the majority of it. I have always been a proud Canadian, but per capita, Canada is the second worst polluting country in the world. This is inexcusable in my eyes. Something I like about the manifesto is the idea of expanding train systems and public transit. Frankly, I think a good public transit system is generally underappreciated. I like the idea of connecting up cities with better rail lines as it would make Canada a smaller country. As for the idea of retiring workers... This would need to happen anyways. The global economy is changing and jobs that used to be secure are being automated. In the next decade, there will be a large increase in structural unemployment and these programs will be necessary. Of course, I have my reservations about some things proposed in the manifesto, like the idea of a tax on financial transactions. Seems to be like it's playing with fire and has the potential to kill real jobs. Another issue that I have is that 2015 might be a little ambitious to have 100% renewable power. Battery technology just isn't there for mass renewables on a national scale. Smaller countries can do it because they have less power needs, but Canada at the moment cannot. Overall, I think it is a good direction for the party, and even if some parts are a problem, they can be fixed later. Canada can't keep down its current direction, and this is a good start. Thanks for the great question, Matt. About the Leap Manifesto, there are some things that I definitely agree with within it. So, that's not to say I want to throw the thing entirely. For example, what you bring up about public transportation, I'm hugely in favor of. I think public transportation is lacking, not just in Canada, but in North America in general. Some cities definitely do it better than others. I can only speak to cities that I've lived in and been in. Uh, Vancouver does public transportation extremely well. When I was living in Vancouver, I didn't even need to think about owning a car. In fact, owning a car is almost a hindrance in, when you live in the city. And the buses and sky trains run efficiently and are usually around in about a two to five minute interval. Then I came to a city like Edmonton, which is trying to get public transportation down But it's very difficult. Right now, we have this train that runs through the middle of the city. It's called the LRT, and it's basically a national joke. Everybody makes fun of it here in Edmonton. Everybody who knows about it across Canada makes fun of it. Basically, it's this giant train that just runs right through the middle of the city, and it comes not every five minutes, but every half an hour. As well, it continually blocks traffic. It drives me nuts when I'm on my way home and all of a sudden, oh no, here comes the LRT, I gotta wait two to five minutes for it to drive by. But in Edmonton's defense, they are trying to figure out the issue of public transportation. I think they could do it. Personally, I think some sort of subway system is the best way to go. But it is difficult because we do face challenges here, mainly in regards to the extreme weather. Because in the summer, we'll probably get upwards of 30 degrees Celsius, and then in the winter, you can get anywhere between negative 30 degrees to sometimes even negative 40. And this wreaks havoc on city infrastructure. Like, the roads here are awful because of the thaw and frost and thaw and frost. It just tears everything up. And then you go to a city like Los Angeles, and they have almost no public transportation. And the public transportation they do have is extremely inefficient and you'd only want to ride it if you were desperate because it's very unsafe. And the way the city is structured as well makes it difficult to create workable public transportation because the city's so spread out as well as it would be hard to come up with some kind of solution That doesn't already add to the congested traffic in the city. And when it comes to building railways across Canada, I think that's a fantastic idea. If I could somehow take a train from Edmonton to Vancouver, I would definitely do that over flying or driving, depending on what the cost would work out to be. But when creating public transport that can cross the country, we run into the same problems that Edmonton has because it's very difficult to create workable infrastructure in a climate that switches between such extreme highs and lows in terms of its temperature. So to me, that's really the main reason why we haven't invested more in public transportation here. But let's talk about the core of the manifesto here and what would be The core of a disagreement between us, I think, and that is the environmental aspects. First off, I think it's difficult to blame Canadians for being such high polluters. There is a very logical reason why Canadians produce more greenhouse gases than other countries per capita. The first reason is because it's coal. We need energy to heat our homes, and there is no cheaper and more efficient energy source for Canadians to heat your homes than natural gas. And if we were to switch to more renewable energies, our energy costs would go up significantly in the short term. And because we need so much energy to heat our homes, that would be a grievous impact on the dollar amount every Canadian has at the end of the day. Cost of living in this country is already very high, and we don't need to make it any higher. The next reason why Canadians pollute so much is because the country's large and in order to survive in this country you have to have your own vehicle. It's very, very difficult to get by in Canada without your own car. And of course we could alleviate that by creating better public transportation networks. And I'm a hundred percent in favor of that. But here's where our fundamental disagreement is. I do not put a lot of emphasis on environmental issues. In fact, if I were to rank the issues that are important to me, I would put the environment as near the bottom. Like I said, I'm an old NDP guy, so for me, the most important issue is jobs and workers' rights. And the fact is, Canada has been extraordinarily blessed with the amount of natural resources we have in this country. And we should use those resources to the utmost advantage. I believe we should be developing the oil sands and continue to develop the oil sands. I believe we should be building pipelines across the country. Because how are we going to fund all this research and development into green energy? We're going to need the income from our natural resources in order to fund that. And if we don't develop our natural resources, we're leaving money on the table and hurting Canadian society as a whole. Green energy is the future, and I want us to switch to a renewable energy source within my lifetime, but it's not going to happen in the next 10 years, or probably not even the next 20 or 30 years. So let's use the advantages that we have while we have them. Last thing on the Leap Manifesto if it was adopted, it could potentially spell electoral disaster for the NDP here in Alberta. And I happen to be a very big supporter of the NDP government here in Alberta. I mean, since I've moved here, I'm paying less taxes and getting more services than I did in British Columbia that has a right-wing government, and I couldn't be happier about that. So I want them to stay in power for a long time, and if they have the Leap Manifesto hanging around their neck, it would not be a good scenario. Anyway, Matt, I hope that answered your question. Julian writes in with a question, and he asks, Hey Spencer, do you think Donald Trump can really win in a general election? When you look at his unfavorable ratings, especially among key demographics, such as minorities and women, they are monstrous and probably insurmountable. When you look at his policy positions, he doesn't have any. He constantly insults, belittles, and demeans all his opponents, and he has not even... Remotely qualified to be president. So given all this, how do you possibly think he can overcome these obstacles? Thanks again, Julian. Great question, Julian. And let me start off by saying I agree with you on virtually everything you just said. I am not a Donald Trump supporter. I am not Donald Trump fan. And I think he would make a disastrous president of the United States. But here's what I'm not willing to do, and that's Underestimate him because that's what everyone has done during the Republican primaries, including me. When I first heard he was running for president, I laughed. I thought it was a joke and gave him approximately a snowball's chance in hell of winning the nomination. But around the fall of last year, my position started to change. And as we were beginning to see more and more debates, I was slowly but surely increasing The probabilities in my head that Donald Trump would win the GOP nomination until, as we all know, he won. And there was this amazing moment when his favorables and unfavorables among Republicans just switched. When he first started his uh, campaign, he was the least favorable of all the Republican candidates. But within a couple months, Somehow, those favorable and unfavorable ratings switched, and I think it could very easily happen again in a general election. I mean, we already have seen the polls between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump begin to close up. I believe I mentioned it, and if I didn't mention it, uh, I'm sorry, and if I mention it again, I'm sorry for repeating myself. There we go, that's me being Canadian, apologizing for everything. But there was a new Reuters poll that came out, showing that Hillary Clinton had a one-point lead over Donald Trump, as well as a poll previously showing that Hillary Clinton was losing in Ohio and Florida, two important swing states, and had tiny leads in other swing states such as Pennsylvania. And all in all, it just looks grim. So if his unfavorable ratings switched before, I think they could switch again. Not to mention the fact that Hillary Clinton's polling numbers have only gone one direction so far throughout this campaign season, and that's down. And Donald Trump's polling numbers have only gone up. If I were a Democrat and I was seeing these polls, I would be freaking out. And the next reason I think he could win a general election is because he's just going to say the complete opposite of everything that he said in the Republican primary. He's already walking back his ban on all Muslims comment, he's already saying, oh, it was just a suggestion. I didn't really mean anything serious. It's not like we've banned any Muslims. He is going to tell people what they want to hear. And a certain percentage of people will be swayed by that. And I think that percentage will be high enough potentially win him a general election. Also take into account who he's facing. Hillary Clinton, who's already extremely dislike who has a criminal investigation ongoing around her and there's nothing she can attack Trump over that she probably hasn't done herself. For example, she was attacking him the other day over not releasing his tax returns, saying it was clear that he was hiding something. But how can she use that line of attack when she refuses to release the transcripts of her speeches to Wall Street? The same logic very clearly applies. So, Maybe you're right, Julian. Maybe everybody's right, and this general election will be a curb stomp of Donald Trump, and he will just get completely demolished, and the Democrats will seize a sizable majority. But Donald Trump's a wild card, and anything can happen when you throw him into the equation. And I certainly don't want that uncertainty. Donald Trump should not be underestimated, and. If Hillary Clinton is the Democratic nominee, it's not going to be an easy fight. There's one guy, though, that doesn't have any of those problems and consistently crushes Trump by ridiculous margins. His name is Bernie Sanders. Anyway, thanks for the question, Julian. I hope that was a satisfactory answer. And now, let's get to Jarton. First things first, though, I have to answer a question he asked a while back And this is about the podcast that I talked about the Russian revolutions of 1905. So anyway, he asks, You talked about the different tactics of late 19th century terrorists and early 21st century terrorists, but aren't they fundamentally different? The revolutionaries in Russia and Britain were protesting their own government and getting them to become so scared for their own lives that they would find themselves driven to change things or inspire the underclass to rise up against the aristocracy. In modern times, it seems to me that a lot of the terrorists have fundamentally different ideologies than the vast majority of other inhabitants or come from one country or another. This might sound a bit far-fetched, But could it be that modern terrorists, or at least the higher-ups within their organizations that may have a hand in planning or inspiring people to commit them, are committing those acts to increase public support of immigrants who would then push for government to limit the flow of immigrants from war-torn countries in their homelands? Now bear with me. The radicals who commit most modern terrorist acts in Western countries support ISIS or other radical groups many of whom are operating in Syria or other countries in the Middle East. Those conflicts lead to a high rate of emigration from those countries, a lot of whom are educated young people. In other words, the people a new or badly ravaged state desperately needs, along with taxpayers, of course. If you look at a lot of the Muslim extremist propaganda, you can see that a big portion of it is about how people shouldn't emigrate from their own state. Currently, they talk about how dangerous it is or how it is against the will of God. However, if a lot of countries suddenly stop taking in those refugees, it can be assumed that people would be a bit more hesitant to leave everything they have behind, since most of them, understandably, want to get into countries with a higher standard of living. Just to reiterate, could modern terrorists be committing those acts to increase the dislike against them The opposite of 20th century terrorists. Well, I do think that they want certain people to dislike them. They want Western countries to dislike them. I don't think they want to turn their own people within their own country or state against them. I think they want to turn the people in Western states against them and thereby against Muslims as a whole. They do want to stop people from leaving their state. And one of the ways they do this is by promoting the idea that everybody in the West hates them, and therefore they should stay or try and fight against those in the West. But I would disagree that these two types of terrorists are fundamentally different. They are different, definitely, but fundamentally they want to achieve goal through creating terror and violence. And that part doesn't change. That core doesn't change. And when looking back at history, just like Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes. And while these two groups of terrorists from history are not the same, they do rhyme, I guess you could say. And there are enough similarities that we can use the lessons of the past to help guide us in our future. I also hope Your uncle's girlfriend does well in her election. She's currently running as an MP for the Pirate Party in Iceland. And Jartan sent me a link to their website that has their core values and platform policies. And I'm just going to read out a couple to inform you guys. The first plank is direct democracy. It says, Pirates believe it to be vital to a functioning democracy that the public be able to participate in the decision-making process when matters being decided upon are of direct concern to them. Pirates do not endorse the idea of the public having to assign a vote that is fixed for four years at a time. Pirates have, for this reason, created a voting system for the purpose of guaranteeing that those decision-making processes are made as inclusive and therefore democratic as possible. Next is transparency. Pirates believe that members of the public should have access to all pertinent information required to make informed decisions, enabling them to give the administration the level of oversight that is necessary. The next is copyright reform. In the Western world, one subjective phenomenon has done more to justify censorship, spying, and internet restrictions than any other. This phenomenon is copyright. Copyright, or at least in its traditional sense, has become a serious threat to free communication, irrespective of whether people are doing something legal or illegal. Pirates are not against copyright, but it is obvious that it needs to be updated. Next is humane drug policy. Pirates seek to go the same route as Portugal when it comes to drug policy. This policy aims to help people who have a drug problem in a humane way, instead of directing drug addicts to the justice system. We want to direct them towards the healthcare system, help them deal with their addiction, and make healthy contributions to society again. Lastly, we'll talk about welfare. Pirates want to build in a minimum living wage standard into law. Everybody deserves a decent income in a wealthy country. All in all, I definitely like what they have to say. They certainly seem to be more than a one-issue party. I don't know if the Pirate Party is the best name for them, but uh hey, what can you do? Lastly, let's talk about some of the updates since the Panama Papers, which Jartan has kindly provided. He also provided me with a large document detailing the entire timeline of the Panama Papers and their fallout in Iceland. So if anybody wants a copy of that, feel free to email me and I'll happily send you a copy given Jartan's permission, of course. Anyway, he writes, 365 Media, which owns 69% of all media in Iceland, has been connected to the Panama Papers. John Asgier, who owned the company and later sold it to his wife after the economic collapse, was found to own an account in the Seychelles Island, along with his wife. In the boom after the economic collapse, John was one of the biggest investors. When it happened, it was found almost all of his investments were gained by taking gigantic loans. In the end, he owed over 2,000 billion units of Iceland's currency. And all his investments and properties had to be auctioned off. However, people couldn't find his yacht. The bank tried as hard as they could, but it had completely disappeared. Now it has been found that he renamed it and moved it over to his wife through their companies in the Seychelles Islands. Another update, their minister of finance, Benjari Ben, has now been found to own a company that is located in the Seychelles Islands from 2000 to 2010 when laws about taxes and offshore accounts were changed. There is nothing known about this company. As far as they know, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't produce anything. He later released a statement saying it was only made to oversee house building in America. The director of the Progressive Party has also been found to own several companies in connections to the Panama Papers and had to resign as a result. The last update here is that presidential elections in Iceland are happening in May. And, unfortunately, the Pirate Party has fallen in the latest polling and is now slightly behind the Independence Party, which, if you remember from the last episode, is the party in Iceland that has ruled since time immemorial, pretty much. Fortunately, they're not winning by very much, only by 0.3 percentage points, excuse me, 0.4 percentage points, so anything can happen going to the polls on May 20th. I really hope the Pirate Party wins. They seem like they're total badasses. Unfortunately, there's no podcast between now and the Icelandic election, but in the next podcast, we'll definitely be covering the aftermath of the election. And that brings us to the end of the question-answer segment of Naples Ultra and to the end of the episode. Thanks for all your hard work, Jarton. It was a pleasure reading everything you had to say about Panama Papers, as well as your insights into the upcoming Icelandic election. We'll keep you posted in the next podcast, which is unfortunately going to have to be two weeks from now. I originally wanted to have it so I would make a podcast next week to alleviate this week-long delay. But there's a long weekend here next weekend in Canada. And I'm going to be visiting with my parents for that long weekend instead of at home. So we will return in two weeks with the promised episode about either Marx or Machiavelli. Again, I still haven't decided which path I'm going to take. Now, for this week's question. My question is, which of the four political camps we talked about in this episode do you think will emerge as the most powerful and why? I hope you guys all enjoy yourself over the next couple weeks, and until next time, this is Spencer Downing, signing off for now, and if you'd like to send us any type of comment, question, or feedback, make sure to send it to my email, which is at mpupodcast.com, or through my Twitter account, which is at mpupodcast. And until next time, you guys, take care.